Hi, I'm Mark Rodman. Coming up on Front Row, we'll talk about the John Hopkins University study on COVID-19 lockdowns, discuss the vacancy at the U.S. Supreme Court, and will the General Assembly legalize online gambling? Next. Major funding for Front Row is provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by Patricia and Ku Yuen through the Yuen Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities. And by. Funding for the Lightning Round provided by Body Knoll Foundation, NC Realtors, Mary Louise and John Burris, Reifenberg Construction, and Helen Lockery. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row. Welcome back. Joining the conversation, Mitch Kokai with the John Locke Foundation, Jonah Kaplan with ABC News 11, political analyst Joe Stewart, and Nelson Dollar, senior policy advisor, North Carolina Speaker House. Mitch, let's begin with a new study on COVID-19 lockdowns. Ever since it became clear that COVID-19 was going to be a major problem early in 2020, policymakers trying to decide what to do about it followed some guiding principles. Among them, follow the science. But uh, one of the problems was there wasn't a whole lot of science to tell us what to do about COVID-19. A lot of it was incomplete, in inaccurate, sometimes contradictory. Still, one of the policies that was adopted by governments uh, around the world was lockdowns. And now this new study from Johns Hopkins University says that was a bad idea. Based Basically, it says that there was little to no effect on COVID-19 mortality from these lockdowns, but they also imposed enormous economic and social costs. Among the other things that this uh, study said is that lockdowns were ill-founded and should be rejected as a pandemic policy instrument. This was a study that was done by researchers based at Johns Hopkins University, but it involved researchers in the U.S., Sweden, and Denmark. So this wasn't just a United States-centric finding. One of the things that's interesting is has been the response to this. There was one professor from Johns Hopkins who's made a big deal out of the, out of the fact that his own university and a lot of media outlets have seemed to put this study to the side, which is a, a, a bad news for something that shows lockdowns have such a Jonah, poor has impact. has the media slow-walked this story? I will say what sticks out to me, I don't want to answer that question, I work in the media. So. <laughs> <laughs> I will say what sticks out to me is John Hopkins has been the preeminent resource in computing and, and reporting the number of COVID-19 cases, the number of hospitalizations, the number of deaths. So. It's it's not really irony. I, I think it actually gives this story credibility and this this report credibility because if there's any entity that has been again the resources and relied upon for giving us data about COVID-19 metrics, it's John Hopkins University. And look, quarantines are nothing new. We quarantine people for Ebola. We've quarantined people for scarlet fever, but it's never been on such a massive scale. Which it was just so widespread, and it was it's it was tough to conceive that it would have made a difference. No, so did Fauci get this wrong? Well, they did. And the long-term cost of these lockdowns resulted, you know, in government policies that have given us high inflation that's going to persist for a while because they pumped all the money in the economy. Well, is it about political power or public health? Well, I've, 
I think the interest was in public health, but it has it uh, raised into, to political power. I think it has morphed into political power, far more control uh, at the federal level. Although I think it's interesting because of the impacts, the the mental health crisis, the what's happened to our students in, in schools, and the result of lost academic and um, and and social connections with so many young people. The crisis that it's created has been very instructive. In 2000, in, in 2021, Biden chose not to go back to lockdowns, even though Delta and Omicron have caused more hospitalizations and more deaths than the original infection. Joe, weigh in here. Yeah, let's hope that the partisan divide that our nation unfortunately suffers from now doesn't keep us from legitimately trying to learn some lessons from how we responded to COVID-19. We can do better and we'll learn things along the way that we can apply the next time, not necessarily when there's a pandemic, but some other either man-made or natural disaster that necessitates good, thoughtful public policy and an approach that keeps people safe while not discouraging economic activity. I, I just hope we can have that conversation and learn the lessons from COVID-19 that will be helpful to all of us. Mitch, final thoughts in about 30 seconds. Yeah, this was something that was unprecedented. So the idea of having a lockdown was not out of the realm of possibility, was not something that especially early on that a whole lot of people were objecting to. But once it became clear that lockdowns had these uh, unintended consequences, that's when governments should have started to moving, uh, moving away from this and moving towards some other solutions. Hopefully, some people will see this Johns Hopkins report and say, hey, no lockdowns the next time we have to deal with this. Okay, Nelson, I want to talk about the vacancy at the U.S. Supreme Court. It gives Biden a new lease on life. Uh, well, absolutely, except Washington this week is actually reeling from the news that uh, Senator Ben Ray uh, Lujan, Democrat of New Mexico, underwent emergency surgery for a stroke in the cerebellum. Uh, until he recovers, which hopefully will be a full recovery, Republicans will effectively control the Senate. So this means that Biden will have to nominate a justice uh, who can actually win some Republican support. And Who are the and, top contenders? Well, you can skip most of the speculation. They're really two top contenders, uh, black females, the Washington legal insider, D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals uh, Judge uh, Katanja Brown Jackson. She's a Harvard a law grad who's been through three Senate confirmations already in her, her career in Washington. The outsider uh, is federal judge J. Michelle Childs of South Carolina. She is a graduate of um, USC and Duke law schools. She's supported by James Clyburn, a uh, very powerful member of the U.S. House. Some say he got key, Biden in. Well, key, in South he Carolina. was absolutely key to Biden surviving primary. in the Democratic primary and being able to move on right. to ultimately come president. Also, she is supported by Senator Lindsey Graham, and she is not from Harvard or Yale. And Senator Tim Scott. But let me ask you, Mitch, should we be picking people by gender and ethnicity or just the best person available? Well, this has certainly sparked quite a bit That's of debate. That's what critics yeah, are asking you, that question. Yeah, you, it's, it's sparked quite a bit of debate. Ilya Shapiro, who recently moved to Georgetown Law, had a tweet basically saying, hey, should we select 
a person for this job because of their merits or because they tick some boxes being a, a black woman caught a firestorm of criticism. And so that really is the debate right now. You would like to see that the best person gets the job of serving on the Supreme Court. But in many areas of our life, it has now come down to filling a particular quota for Well, for you know, Reagan positions. did pick Sandra Day O'Connor, and he had pledged that during the campaign. And President yes, Trump pledged to nominate a woman after the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So we didn't have these right. questions then either, and that was in our short-term memory. I think for Biden, this is kind of interesting because this is one of those things where, look, Democrats have wanted this seat. That's clearly why uh, Justice Breyer kind of felt the pressure and is, is stepping down now before the midterm elections. But now you're going to see, again, the divides between the Democratic party wings, the more progressive well, side, the moderate question. side. That's a good question. That's a good comment. Can he reshape the liberal wing of the Supreme Court on the Democratic side? Well, for instance, this Michelle Childs, who from South Carolina, you know, I was reading that she, in her former work, you know, did a lot of work with corporations and labor unions don't necessarily like right. her as a pick. So but that my question be... is, does it make it more progressive? I don't think so. And Jonah raises a good point. In, in, in Child's background, she's defended companies against employees, and that's part of the, the knock on her. That's a, a business disposition. So perhaps she does bring a more pragmatic orientation around particularly economic and business issues. But, you know, Supreme Court justice nomination and confirmation is a kind of thing. It's a very specific thing. There's a a lot of the effort that goes in to vet them, but inevitably something comes up Does in the confirmation process. Does this help mobilize uh, Biden's base going into to the, uh, the midterms, Joe? You know, in, in the words of the Zen master, we'll see. <laughs> which, okay. which base? That's the, the question again. Which base will it activate? And Final also, thoughts quickly. And, and also the important thing to note is with these two very different candidates we've been talking about, not every black woman's going to vote the same right. way on different cases. They're not monolithic. A, yeah, they're not monolithic. That's not true of any group that you uh, separate by race or gender or ethnicity. we got to move on, change topics. I want to talk to you, Joan, about online gambling in North Carolina. So to me, online gambling is a lot like speeding. We know it happens everywhere. So does police. But you can't stop it unless police are literally going to be everywhere. And in North Carolina and in dozens of other states where online gambling is illegal, it happens. The question is, if you do make it legal, is there a way, is there a mechanism to then generate revenue so that it can help the state? North Carolina was among the last states in the, in the East Coast to bring in a lottery. Uh, fascinating story, as I understand. Uh, right now, you, there is sports That's betting. Before your time. I know. <laughs> right now, there is sports betting, but you have to go physically to make those bets at Harris, which is in the Cherokee and in the western part of the state. So the question is, now you have two senators, Jim Perry and Paul Lowe, putting together this bill, Senate Bill 688. And yes, it, it creates a mechanism for which there could be online gambling regulated, but there are a number of problems with this. First of all, will it raise enough money to make a difference? And that's the trade-off. And also, there's opponents of saying North Carolina has a rich sports tradition, and that includes collegiate sports. So will UNC, will Duke, will these college athletes, could there be some sort of vice by being uh, in the shadow of online sports gambling? You know, Mitch, critics say that it's a tax on the poor, is it? 
Well, that's one of the reasons why among the people who are the biggest opponents are the folks on the sort of leftmost edge of the Democratic caucus, the folks who don't like policies that target people like the lottery. They were initially opponents of the lottery. To me, the interesting thing here is to see what's happening in other states. We've got uh, Virginia, West Virginia, Tennessee, all close to us that have this online gambling. We've got our professional team. Jonah mentioned the college teams. The professional teams in North Carolina are all for it. We have among the supporters people who are powerful, including on the House side, Jason Sane. So it looks like the train is moving in that direction, uh, whatever people are talking about now. Joe. Well, the interesting thing is, and I remember very famously, Representative Skip Stam, when the lottery was being debated, said the lottery was really just a tax on people that are bad at math. And, and so in many ways, gambling is a tax on people who have some expectation that they can spend a little bit of money and make a lot of money. But the way gambling works is not many people make a lot of money on the gambling. It counts on a lot of people well, spending money on it. Well, can we count on the revenue? Um, to you know, the point to me, of diminishing returns? Well, I, I would have to say this. I don't think gambling is a fad. <laughs> I think, I think yeah. it's here to stay. Uh, whether or not you can create a structure for the revenue collection that's consistent, I don't know. But it's not the same as having a solid taxation policy that generates the revenue necessary for the functions of government. And it's an easier thing to say. We're not going to raise your taxes. We're going to re generate revenue on all of these other activities. I don't know that it's the best possible policy, but I suspect it's something that's inevitably going to happen. Nelson. Well, in 2005, I was there and voted against the lottery, so I'm not a fan. But the conversation really has changed over the years. Uh, back then, we were working at ways to eliminate uh, computer gaming, sweepstakes parlors, uh, but the companies always found ways to get around the laws we wrote. Now, the momentum really is truly behind uh, the side of legalization. The arguments are the same. It's going to happen anyway. Let's make it legal so we can regulate it and we can get the revenue. And I do think, going back to, to Jonah's observation, a real question with this bill, if it does pass and it's pending in the House now, is the very low rate of fees and the low tax rate uh, that's in the bill as compared to other states. I think New Jersey was, what, at 51% of the revenues they tax. Uh, Virginia's at 15%. This bill says only 8%. So I think if they get ready to do it, you're going to start seeing so, some of those numbers come up to make it more substantial for the state. Trying to wrap this up in about 30 seconds, my friend. Not to open up another can of Carolina ale here, but it's... <laughs> you wouldn't do that, right? uh, <laughs> It's kind it's of one of those show. things with, like, with medical marijuana and, and other states. I mean, the, the, clearly the momentum is going there. The question is, is North Carolina and lawmakers are going to have to make the decision. Do they want to get in on it while they can or watch as other states reap the benefits while North Carolina sits it out, knowing that it's still going to happen anyway. Okay, we got to move. The fundraising numbers, Joe, are in for the U.S. Senate candidates. Who are the winners and losers? Well, you know, it's always interesting. Money gets a lot of attention early on in campaigns because it's considered to be something of a barometer in terms of how well the candidates are doing. Uh, it is an indication. I always say money matters something in politics. It doesn't matter exclusively, but the part of a campaign that it matters about matters a lot. And so we, we saw Ted Budd winning in terms of the number of dollars brought in in the last cycle uh, of campaign finance reports uh, uh, 
that are required by the Federal Elections Commission. Pat McCrory coming in second. Uh, Bud with almost a million dollars raised. McCrory about three quarters of a million. Their cash on hand numbers are about the same. Bud at 2.2 million and McCrory at 1.9 million. Uh, Marjorie Eastman, kind of a dark horse candidate, not polling at even one percent. back by? Well, it's it seems like it's a broad base of, of uh, small dollar contributors. She's an activist and has been engaged in a lot of things. Fred She's, Eshelman, the, the well, entrepreneur, is behind her, right? Yeah, she brought in a, a little under $500,000, but only has about $280,000 cash on hand. So from a burn rate standpoint, I don't know that she can do much with that little bit of money. But the real winner in this is Cherry Beasley, the Democrat who now really has no opponent. She brought in over $2 million and has nearly $3 million cash on hand. And because she doesn't face a real Democratic primary challenge, can deploy all those resources for the fall. Nelson, was this the low-hanging fruit? Now it gets tougher to raise money. Oh, I think that's true. And, of course, it's Joel Gray would once sing, uh, money makes the world go around. So, but going into this cycle, North well, Carolina. Walker used to say, your love gives me such a thrill, but your love don't pay the bill. Uh, oh, absolutely. <laughs> and those bills. I don't, I don't know these songs. <laughs> those TV, the cabaret. So, but anyway, going into this cycle, <laughs> the assumption was that North Carolina would be a top tier uh, target of the Democrats. Actually, that is changing. Democrats are now going to be on the defensive. They're going to work to protect uh, incumbents in Arizona, Nevada, Georgia, uh, New Hampshire. Uh, their top pickup target is probably going to focus in on Pennsylvania. So North Carolina is going to move to number two on the the status still be a lot of money, but probably not as much. I don't think the Democrats are going to make the mistake they made in 2020 when they invested hundreds of millions of dollars in places like South Carolina and Kentucky, and they didn't protect their home turf. You know, these kind of are lowball numbers compared to past campaigns, Senate campaigns. What role do you think uh, the super PACs will play? That was one of the points that I was going to make, is that uh, these numbers are important, but they probably aren't as important as all the outside money that's going to come in. That's going to be a major factor. Plus, we also have to keep in mind, at least on the Republican side, I think there's probably some money still sitting back waiting to see who wins. I mean, we know it's going to be very a tough-fought battle between former Governor Pat McCrory and Congressman Ted Budd, with Mark Walker still hanging out in there. I bet there's some Republican money just saying, I'll wait to see who wins the primary, then throw my money in. How big does Trump loom in the GOP primary? That's going to be a question that they're going to have to ask, and we're going to have to see what kind of role the president is also going to play in this race. The yeah, will he come in? Will he come in? Will he visit? Will he endorse, let's say, Ted Budd loses? Will he endorse whoever else wins the race? Uh, it, to me, the issue with, with money is, I mean, let's go talk to Hillary Clinton, how, how money works out in an election. Uh, who remembers Amy McGrath in Kentucky or Jamie Harrison in right. South Carolina? All these folks had money. There was no way all that money was going to take down uh, Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham, respectively. So well, that's a great point, money because is message important. matters. M message matters, and money doesn't necessarily buy votes. It might buy visibility, but there are a lot of intangible things that can happen. And, I mean, right now, we're just, we're t yes, it's important. Preseason games are important when you're evaluating yeah, but talent. But you love it. You love it. Yeah, yeah. I'm okay. just saying. It's good. It's good, yeah. <laughs> okay, we got to move on. Let's go to the most underreported story of the week, Mitch. Catherine Truitt is our elected state superintendent of public instruction, and this week she mentioned that she's asking the State Department of Health and Human Services for goalposts about the masking of students in schools. There's a, a reason for this because uh, we have a, a variation in terms of mask mandates in communities across the state, but most school districts are still relying on the guidance that comes from DHHS. So Catherine Truitt is saying that she you know, wants to know 
what's going to be the, the place that we reach where you can stop mandating masks for students? And that's one of the things that she's uh, talking a lot about, also about some of the learning loss that's come about because of students who are not in school for such a long time. So I think that's going to be a very interesting thing to see. When is the DHHS going to say that, all right, this is the point at which masking can end for students in schools? Jonah. Yes, my family from my four-year-old. That time was long ago. She's got to lose <laughs> that mask. Um, but on that same line, another underreported story is that, look, it's not just America that's studying the effects of these things, but in Great Britain, which did a lot of similar things in terms of masking and school shutdowns and different restrictions, they're now studying the effects on especially younger children. And already they're finding that, especially looking at the kindergarten age children now, a healthy majority, I mean, we're talking more than 70% of kids are not near the, the level of learning that kindergartners at that age group was experiencing a couple years ago before the pandemic. This is going to be, when we talk about COVID-19 and the pandemic, the story is not going to end this year, next year, five years, 10 years. This is going to be a generational story that we're going to have to follow, and I worry about the repercussions. Great catch. One of the unfortunate things in COVID-19 were some usual functions of government got delayed. And I had a conversation this week with a fellow named Judd Patterson who lives in Johnston County, whose son Reynolds passed away in August of last year, and the autopsy on his son has yet to be completed. There's no reason to suspect foul play, but the Patterson family's not able to get their son's personal effects from the police who say they have to see the toxicology report. Normally, the medical examiner in North Carolina does about 12,000 autopsies in the course of a year. They're about three or 4,000 behind. Uh, the family still has not heard when it will be completed. It's been more than six months, but a number of families are in the similar situation where they can't file life insurance claims and other things because of this backlog. The medical examiner is working very hard What's the to try to catch up. What's that? What's the explanation? Well, like many functions of government, they had people that had COVID, so they weren't able to come and work in the medical examiner's office. It's very specific work, so you can't just have someone come in and perform an autopsy. It's not really, and the Patterson family's not angry or frustrated. It's just one of those things we've had to learn. Now, if we ever have a situation like this, it's a function of government that needs to be continued on despite the pandemic. Nelson. Uh, Vice week, right? So this week, Mississippi <laughs> became the 38th state to legalize medical marijuana. Uh, at the same time, a study was released on the health risk of recreational cannabis. Uh, researchers at the University of Montreal uh, showed that cannabis intoxication uh, can have long-lasting effects beyond just, you know, getting high, and that is affecting brain function, impacting memory, the ability to focus, processing information, simple motor skills, especially for teens and, and young people in Scotland, admissions to psychiatric hospitals among cannabis users have risen 74% since they introduced decriminalization six years ago, and a Harvard study of uh, 246 uh, psychotic patients ages uh, 16 to uh, 35 found that 78% of those had used cannabis. Uh, so far, 18 states have legalized recreational use of marijuana, and I think the concern is particularly for young people, we have not made them aware of the dangers. Good catch, good catch. Can the word buzzkill? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay, let's go to Leighton around. Who's up and who's down this week, Mitch? 
By who's up? Lawyers working on redistricting. Anyone who worked uh, who watched the oral arguments before the Supreme Court saw five different attorneys talking to the justices. That's just a, the tip of the iceberg. If you look at all the court filings, the number of lawyers working on this case, more than 70, and about three out of four of them are working against North Carolina's election maps. By who's down? Paul Coe, that is the name of an assistant superintendent in one of the state's largest school systems, Wake County Schools. Uh, there is a 26-second clip of him talking about the masking of kids as young as two years old. In his defense, Wake County School System says that's a small clip from a much larger presentation. But against him, someone has latched onto this and made a social media campaign about masking of two-year-olds. Jonah. So what's up, and this is ironic because clearly Whoopi Goldberg is not up, but because of her, I thank her for bringing the conversation about the Holocaust. And Holocaust education is up because I think there's a reckoning she's now. She's been suspended for two weeks by ABC for her comments saying the Holocaust was not about race. But the timing was impeccable. And, and look at what's happened with Mouse, the banning of this uh, longtime effective book about the Holocaust, but also okay. because of Catherine and because of North Carolina's law, which now mandates Holocaust education. So that is now up. Uh, down is, is Spotify. Uh, it, it's, this is a, a medium where you can listen to podcasts and things. And look, it's a slippery slope when trying to police what's being said and, and the kind of guests you can have. Joe, up and down. Yeah, who's up? The possibility of a, a digital greenback. The Federal Reserve is evaluating whether or not U.S.-backed cryptocurrency might be on the horizon for us. Uh, despite the fact cryptocurrency hasn't done well of late, a lot of governments around the world are looking if they should get into this new form of currency. Who's down an assessment of the Paycheck Protection Program by the National Bureau of Economic Research. Ten economists saying their estimates are that only about a quarter to a third of the money actually went to workers. The vast majority of PPP grant funds went to shareholders and owners of companies. Nelson. Uh, up, health care in California, AB 1400, the single-payer health care bill in California failed to get a vote by Monday's deadline in the California Assembly. The estimated cost of more than $400 billion and hundreds of billions in new taxes was too expensive even for California progressives. <laughs> I, I That's expensive. expensive. <laughs> That's expensive. It's a lot of money. Um, who's down? Uh, this week, Chinese government finished removing uh, all of Hong Kong's memorial commemorating uh, the 1989 Tiananmen Square massacre and the pro-democracy movement, including the very famous Pillar of Shame. Don't expect to hear about any of this during the coverage of the Olympics. Mitch, headline next week. Supreme Court redistricting ruling sets off scramble over new maps. So we'll get that ruling next week, you think? I, I think it'll come sooner rather than later. Jonah. Probably a Friday at 5 o'clock. <laughs> uh, I think you're going to see controversies Wait. and some tensions at the Olympics. I do, too. Headline next week. With announced retirement, say it with me. Tom Brady for president in 2024. <laughs> You'd like to have that contract, wouldn't you? I want to see him in Iowa and New Hampshire. Headline quickly. Uh, Olympic advertising and viewership down. Okay, great job, gents. That's it for us. Thanks for watching. Hope to see you next week on Front Row. Have a great weekend. Major funding for Front Row was provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by Patricia and Ku Yuen through the Yuen Foundation.
committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities and by funding for the lightning round provided by body knoll foundation nc realtors mary louise and john burris reifenberg construction and helen lockery a complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row.